Welcome to the Women's Running Coaches Collective, Conversations on Coaching. If you want to learn more about us, go to womensrunningcoaches.org. Please join us to help change the landscape of women coaches in running and track and field. You can make a difference. Today's conversation is with Jacqueline Hansen, pioneer marathoner, world record holder, and running activist. This is Season 1, Episode 7, Part 1. Interview by Charlotte Lettuce Richardson. Welcome to the Women's Running Coaches Collective, Conversations on Coaching. I'm so honored today to have uh, one of my heroines of uh, all time. Her name is Jacqueline Hansen. Uh, she is a pioneer in women's distance running, as well as a freedom fighter to get more longer events in the Olympics for women. Um, and made a huge, huge change in our world uh, from the 70s and 80s into what women could do in long distance running. So just to talk about Jacqueline a bit. So in 1966, um, she ran as a senior in her first girls track and field team at Granada Hills High School in California. She says prior to that, that she was not very athletic, which you'll see later on that's not true, but she, <laughs> she truly found something that she loved. Uh, she said that during the president's physical fitness days in her school, she only part she really liked was doing the running part. So obviously she was uh, bound to become a true runner. Uh, she ran in college at Pierce College and Cal State Northridge, and she ran everything from the 880, the mile, and cross country, which at that time went from one mile to 2.5 miles. In 1970, she started running with the famous coach, Lazo Tabori, uh, and he was a protege of Mihaly Igloy, who was Hungarian. Is that right, Hungarian? Correct. Right, and Laszlo actually was the third man to break four minutes in the mile. So what a, what a coach to have, Jacqueline, amazing. In 1972, she began her incredible marathon legacy by winning her first marathon in Culver City at the Western Hemisphere Marathon. In 1973, she won the Boston Marathon, only the second year that women were allowed to run. Um, and then a few months later, she represented uh, Cal State Northridge by winning the AIAW Mile Championship, uh, National Championship. So she went from marathon to mile, which, you know, Jacqueline, what an incredible range you have or have. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> a few months later, uh, no, in, in 1974, um, she broke the world record at, again at Culver City at the Western Hemisphere's Marathon, and she ran 243 and change. And then in 1975 at the Eugene Marathon, uh, OTC Marathon, she broke the world record again and ran 238.19, and she was the first woman, woman to break 240 in the marathon, which is really incredible. And she'll talk about that later. That was one of your peak experiences in your Absolutely. life. Absolutely. <laughs> in 1978, she won the National AAU, AAU 50 miler. Um, it was on the track. Yep. And along the way, she broke 11 world records, which is incredible. Over her career, she's run 20 marathons, winning 12 of them and setting two world records. In 2012, she was inducted into the National Distance Running Hall of Fame. Besides being a running legend, 
she is an author of an amazing book called A Long Time Coming. It is in great detail of times and workouts and really what it was like during the late 60s, 70s, and into the 80s to be a distance runner as a woman. The part that I love best, Jacqueline, uh, is that you kept 40 years worth of journals, which is amazing. The detail, the fact that you could tell me what you were doing on what day and what workout with whom and all of that is incredible. So please, if you get a chance, get the book A Long Time Coming because it is a remarkable story of, of women and, and, and distance running. Um, so Jacqueline, you yeah. are what I would consider an icon in Thank the you. world of women's distance running. Um, I mean, I think you are one of the greats that would go down with Doris Her Brown Heritage and the Francie LaRue's and the Joan Benoit's of the world. Um, and it's so funny, I always think, we all know uh, the names of the great male runners, but we don't necessarily have the names of the great female distance runners the way that I, I feel we should. So anyways. I appreciate that very, very much. I'll show you real quick. Oh yeah, please, okay. please, please. Yeah. There's your so, book. There's my book in my proud moment after finishing the first Women's Olympic Trials Marathon. Right. You know, Jacqueline, I, I have to say the, the story is so incredibly engaging to me, mainly because I think I was on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. I'm a contemporary of yours. You're right. a little, little bit older than me, but not much. And you're on the West Coast. And we're sort of living these parallel lives as right. we go along. Um, and we'll talk about it later, but we finally met and only ran one race against each other. That's in probably true. I was wondering about that. Well, the, most the most memorable race, of course. Right. But maybe I, we've just talked about it. You were probably in the 72 cross country champion yeah, championships and 74 also. So the, we the probably same just didn't snow know in Ohio. Right. So, well, I've been so delighted uh, to finally uh, really um, have a friendship with Jacqueline that I think has happened over many, many years. But as we've gotten older, I think we've enjoyed seeing each other and being in contact with each other. So truly, truly love it. Oh, same for me. I feel exactly the same. Thank you. So, so um, Jacqueline, you grew up in the 50s and 60s uh, when sports for girls and women consisted of very few opportunities. Right. Um, in addition, you said in your book, A Long Time Coming, you were not very athletic in high school, no. uh, but loved to do that running section in the president's physical fitness day. Uh, could you paint us a picture of those times to help us see through your eyes what it was like? Wow, yes. Um, I know in high school, I really didn't like PE because it was such a painful experience. I really could not, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't hit a ball, I couldn't catch a ball, I couldn't you know, b basketball, volleyball, I could not find a sport that I was really good at. I enjoyed sports. And, and mind you, we didn't really have competitive sports because all we had was GAA, the Girls Athletic Association, and you played half court basketball and uh, round robin, you know, nobody kept score because goodness, you know, <laughs> goodness forbid that we would be competitive, right? You know, so we didn't keep score. Being competitive wasn't ladylike. 
So we just played at sports. But in PE, I was never picked for the team, whatever team it was, it didn't matter. And the, co the teacher would have to assign me. And um, so I was mostly a bench warmer. <laughs> and I really wasn't much of a participant. So I went to a large enough high school that had electives. I mean, we had enough, we had a, a student population big enough that besides regular PE, you could take electives to get out of PE, which I did. So I took things like marching or dance, <laughs> modern dance, and I took a tennis class and we had a new PE teacher teaching tennis. And she happened to be a national champion in the throws. Now she never quite made an Olympic team, but we knew she was good enough to go to the Olympic trials. And uh, she looked around and said, why don't the girls have a track team? The boys have a track team. And she began one. So she was my introduction to uh, track and field. And her name was Dixie Griffin. And so that, that was an introduction, but remember we were limited to the 400 meters in distance. So I really hadn't found my event. In fact, she didn't even take me to the city meet. There, was a, there actually was a city meet and I wasn't good enough to go. <laughs> Hard to believe. Hard to believe, but I kept it up and then, you know, then I, uh, I moved on to my junior college at Pierce College, two-year college, and then uh, eventually, you know, Cal State Northridge, which when I began was San Fernando Valley, San Fernando Valley State College. So I, I went in at one name and I came out as Cal State Northridge, but I didn't really get any coaching at either of those colleges either. So, so they, I, had they had a team. They, they did, well, the first, Pierce had a team uh, taught by a golf teacher who <laughs> kind of taught it like a skills test. Like this week, we're going to focus on long jump. Right. 10 point quiz on Friday. And then next week, we're going to study the shot put, you know, things like that. Right. So it, we didn't really get the coaching, but we did go to meets and we did compete. And it was just fun. I don't remember a whole lot. I, I wasn't like I had a stellar career beginning but I had a lot of fun. So did yeah. you, when you were at Pierce College, did you end up running the mile? And No, no, at that point, by the time I, let's see, 400 was the limit at high school, 800 was the limit at Pierce, and then the mile was um, the limit at my four-year college. Right, so, well, uh, you became a runner uh, prior to the marathon, 5K and 10K inclusion in the Olympics. Um, so you're talking about here you are on a track and field team and it's 400 is the farthest or 800 is the farthest you could go. Um, did you realize that the distances you were allowed to race did not showcase uh, the amazing talent you had? Did you have a sense of that at all? Did you? Not really. No, not really. You ran. It's funny. At that point in time, I didn't necessarily question. Uh, not yet. That came later. But I, I didn't question, I just was trying, I really wanted to be a javelin thrower. I tried that too. <laughs> so I tried all the events, you know, I was game, uh, but I really hadn't found my event yet. I just didn't know it. Right, right. Um, in fact, yeah. I, now that you say that, um, now that you say that, I'm not sure Laszlo did either. At least he, I read an interview in the paper once and he didn't see it in me either, wow. even after I started training with him. But there was one day when I ran a cross country race, which I led and my teammate who was for whatever reason, not competing was standing next to him. And she told me, 
she said, oh my gosh, Laszlo, what is she doing? She took the lead. And he actually said to her, that's where she belongs. She just doesn't know it yet. Wow. wow. Yeah. Well, and he was a miler. And was, so yeah. he was a middle distance guy, you know? And yeah. so was he coaching anybody else on the team in longer events or was it mostly middle distance? Mostly middle distance, right. mostly middle distance. Yeah, we had to learn the marathon training together. Right. Well, it's funny because I started out uh, running with a bunch of marathoners. And, you know, my story, they ran by my house and I thought they were all really cute, a bunch of guys. And then they came back two hours later and I was like, where have you guys been? You know, and <laughs> they told me they were training for the marathon. Ah. And, in, in, and then they invited me to come running with them. And, uh, you know, I outkicked him at the end. But I was always in the mind that I was going to be running longer races. And truly, that wasn't my strength necessarily. I think. Right, right. Well, you know, I did have a very similar experience to that. Laszlo trained us all as middle distance runners. We were all going to be milers, every one of us, men and women. And yet, I, my, myself and Judy Graham, actually, Judy Graham is the woman who introduced me to Laszlo. I was out running all by myself one day bumped right into her while I was at Cal State Northridge and I bumped right into her and it was like, oh my gosh, you become instant friends because I'd never seen another woman running. So she Is said, well, I have- was? Anybody yeah. who was a woman runner, we were instantly friendly with. Exactly. It was a rarity to find one. So I said, she said, you may, I have a club and I have a coach and you're welcome to join. I did not know what I was getting into. I had no idea what I was getting into. I probably would never have gone if she had told me his accomplishments. If I had known his style of coaching, it was, I was in way over my head. But I, um, but I went, I went. In fact, uh, I've told the story probably a million times, but it is true that the first workout with him, after the warm up, I thought that was the workout. <laughs> it was longer than anything I'd ever done. And she told me, no, that we're just going to change our shoes into our spikes now. We're not, then we're beginning the real workout. And I thought, I am in so much trouble. I am so over my head. But I, I think I thrived under his system because I didn't have any bad habits to break. I'd never had a coach before. So I didn't have to, all I had to change was, you know, doing more. And he had to bring me along, obviously, because I, I couldn't handle the workload. He had to bring me along. But I minded, I minded all the rules. Right. And he was quite the disciplinarian. <laughs> However, you know, one rule was you only run on grass or dirt. Which is amazing. Never touch cement or asphalt. So even on our off days, Judy and I were running around a grass park or a dirt trail. So uh, once, but once, like your guys that you mentioned, once we were running at our grass park and we saw the guys leaving on the roads, coming back two hours later, right? Drinking beers, telling stories, having so much fun. So when he also gave us, gave us two weeks off once in the summertime, I followed the guys. <laughs> Judy was afraid to. She turned around and went back and I said, how's he ever going to know? And so. I followed the guys. I did one. I, he knew everything. I found, I ran one 10 miler and one 14 miler in the summer. 
And that was it for my long distance runs ever before I went into my first marathon. But I did have a lot of fun. And, and the guys were led by a 66 year old man who was just hilarious. He, he just entertained us with stories the whole way. We had so much fun. Yeah. You know, and in a way, I say that I didn't question the distances I was limited to. However, from the day I started running it in, in, on that track team at Granada Hills High School, I did, my best friend and I had a fun thing that we wanted, we challenged each other, how far can you run without stopping? Oh, wow. So in my heart, I wanted to run farther. Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to run farther, but I'd never questioned when they put the limits on how far I could go. Well, I, I know Doris Brown Heritage said to me um, in my film that she said we were just grateful to be able to run at all. And Correct. I think it changes as a generations, you know, and she was, I think she ran towards the end of the 40s, into the 50s, uh, into right. the 60s. And she basically, um, you know, didn't, didn't have those opportunities. And so when she got them slowly, I think she was just grateful to be able to run. Um, right. You know, and, and, and her passion for running is very much like yours. Uh, uh, she, she couldn't not run, let's just right. say that. Exactly. I always loved it. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I guess in a funny sort of way, I'm a high school coach. And one of the things that I always encourage my kids to do is don't start with the 3,000 meters. Don't yeah. start with, you know, start with the 400. Start with the 800, especially the freshmen. Mm -hmm. um, and work on your speed because... You know, the distance, as you said, just adding the miles on, you can do that fairly simply, but learning to run fast is so important from every distance, for every distance. True, true. I think that um, my first marathon, two women from San Diego, Donna Gookin, um, came to, up to me and said, oh my gosh, now the speedsters are coming into the marathon. They're, it's going to oh. change everything. They knew that was very prophetic. So I was coming from a speed and, and Eileen Waters was the other woman. Um, they, they said that they, that was like prophetic, but uh, of course I didn't, my first marathon, I didn't have the um, endurance or the discipline or anything, you know, so it was kind of painful, but I got through. Right. I remember, I mean, I was doing all intervals all the time, but sometimes those could add up to two or three hours a night. Well, and so I looked had at endurance in a different way, right? And, and I looked at um, your workouts towards the end of the book. You have an appendage, and and you you describe workouts, and I just thought, oh my gosh! I mean, your warm up alone would have put that kind of training on you, just the endurance yeah. portion yeah. of it for sure. Yeah, so I'm lucky. And the other part about being trained for the shorter events, I always had really good form because Laszlo was a taskmaster about form. No matter how no matter how slow I would could run on an easy day, somebody would compliment my form. Yes. And yet, if I went out to Laszlo's workout tomorrow, he would find something to correct. Mm -hmm. So he never stopped refining my form. And people people compliment me on my form. You your form was absolutely beautiful. I needed him because I had my arms way up here, and you know, yeah. I mean, weak hips, and you know, you were doing the kinds of things that were really bringing you along as a runner. Right. Uh, versus just kind of throwing the the miles on you, um, which we so often see happening, and you know, kids get hurt and all that sort of right. thing. Right. Yeah, I felt like I was brought along just right. It was really perfect. 
Well, that's my next question. I mean, for the kind of runner you were, why was Laszlo a good fit for you? And you've kind of talked about that a bit. Can you describe some of his workouts? Because, um, you know, I'm fascinated by them. Um, and what do you credit Laszlo for in your great success as a distance runner? Oh, wow. He taught me all of life lessons, all the life lessons you learn through sports, right? I had never been so disciplined in my life. You know, running was um, kind of a hobby. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was kind of, when I began without a coach, it was kind of a fair weather you know, runner. I'd run in the spring uh, when it was track season, maybe not the rest of the year. I would run if I felt like it. I would run how I felt like. Um, but I, I found that discipline, you know, I mean, like from workout number one, where it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. But he said, I'll see you next time. And you knew you better show up next time. He was such a disciplinarian. You know, you really didn't, you didn't question. You just did what you were told and you asked permission, right. uh, which is so unusual, you know, and, and uh, neither of us, he or I ever got used to athletes talking back. Like, I'm not, I'm going to miss workout tomorrow, coach. You know, that would never happen. Right. Um, right. Our workouts, like we would warm up with a two and a half mile easy run as a group. And then we would do some stretching and change our shoes maybe. And then we would do what we call shakeups, which are hundred meters between the goalposts on the grass. And you had to run whatever he told you, you know, alternating medium and hard, or maybe six medium, four hard, too easy, whatever he made up, but you would do 15 of those. So you've got 15 times a hundred and you very well better only walk from the goalpost to the edge of the track and back for recovery and go. And I'll never forget the night I took a shortcut. I maybe didn't walk all the way to the edge of the track. I just turned around to get it over with. And he corrected me after I'd done all 15 and I got to do 15 more. Oh, well, it sounds like me with my kids, you know, don't know. I'll have you do strides, but you, you jog back. You don't. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned, you know, it was like, okay, I will never make that mistake again. Um, and then your, your workouts, never to the same, never to the same, at least for under his watch. Okay. You might get the same easy day, you know, whatever it was, but on your off day, but under his watch, you never had two workouts the same, but I had a lot of fun in predicting and taking bets on predicting. <laughs> we, we did that a lot. But also, you also weren't supposed to talk during the workout. You could talk during the warm-up and the shake-ups, but never, not during the workout workout. So that was another one that would get you, you're going to do it all over the right way now. So um, you would, in general, if I can generalize it all, you might begin with something as short as 150s or 200s, and you might go as long as um, five lappers. So instead of doing like repeat miles, they would be five lappers and you never knew which four he was timing. Oh, wow. For the mile, he was getting your mile time, but you ran five laps. So you had to run all five hard. Right. You didn't know if it was the first four or the last four. Anyway, whatever. So that would be about the longest and the shortest would be 150s. And you would just have combinations, six or eight of anything. Right. And it would start with the shorter ones, build up to the peak and then and you might end with 200s coming back down. Did he like tell that. you ahead of time? Did he say, I want you to run these at this time? You just- We, we didn't know until we got on the starting line. Wow. And so each- and Some things would be timed, some would not. Sometimes right. it would just be go do six times 200 
every other one hard. Right. But then you knew when he pulled the watch, he had like a dozen watches around his neck and he knew where every group was doing something different. Mm -hmm. And he knew where everybody was at any one time and he kept a little black book. Oh yeah. And so he always knew if you were on or you were off. But the beauty of it was I said he had the magic eye. We never had two workouts the same because he might have written out a workout for all of us. Right. And then he adjusted them according to how we looked that night. He knew when we needed less and he knew when we could take more. And that's a sign of an incredible coach. Yeah. Truly. Um, I wrote every workout down. That's why I have all of my workouts. So. But exactly. you couldn't take my template and follow it and get the same results. Right. He was adapting it for me. Well, and, and it's so funny. I know I listened the other night to the Boston Marathon Women Pioneers. And oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah, I was, it was really fun to see all those people. And, you know, all of them, Sarah May, uh, Nina, um, Patty Catalano. I mean, all of those women were so important in my life. So I've really enjoyed it. But um, I remember you said at one point that we'll talk about this later, but us racing and we both thought maybe we should tie. And you said, well, I thought about Laszlo and I thought if I tie, he's not going to be happy about that. And so was this something that, um, what kinds of those sorts of life lessons or whatever it is about running, yeah. did he instill in you? Oh my goodness. Well, Okay, so I learned all, I learned, I described some hard lessons I learned about, you know, doing the workout just right or having just the exact form he was looking for. Get those heels down or get those elbows in or pull that chin down. I mean, all of that. But he also had a soft side to him. And after, after I became a world record holder, and there were actually, there were two things that were kind of funny. Um, as I was number one in the world, you know, he would remind me. <laughs> that you, you remember who you are, you know? <laughs> so if I, but if I was a, a little bit afraid or intimidated by the competition of going to a big championships, he would say, oh, they just put their shoes on over their feet just like you do. Yeah. Don't worry about them. Yeah. And then the other thing he said was, remember, you're number one in the world, but you're, you won't always be number one in the world. I will still be your friend. You're number one in the world and you have lots of friends, lots of friends. Some of them just want something from you. Some of them just want to be a friend of yours. But when you're not, I'm still here for you. And I will train you as long as you live. You know, I was loyal to him. He, he always thanked me up until, you know, his last breath. He always thanked me for being loyal to him. I feel fortunate that I had one coach my whole life, my whole running life, one coach, who could know me better. And unconditional better love me. in a sense, unconditional with you. I mean, in a sense, he was a taskmaster when you were training and racing and all those things, but he loved you for the person you were. And I think, you know, as a coach, if you can get that kind of trust, it is the best way. Yeah, to work it, with it totally is. It totally is. So I, I feel very grateful. Yeah. And, you know, my husband was an agent, as you know, and a lot of his athletes would, they would get world-class and then they start shopping for a new coach to get better. And one after the other, I tried to tell them, mm -hmm. mentor them that stay with the one who got you where you are. Right. And oftentimes they didn't get better until they went back. Yeah, and, and that to me is, especially with the fact that this is a Women's Running Coaches Collective, you know, one of the things that we always say to coaches is, 
make sure kids know that you care about them. Make Correct. sure that they know that you really have their best interests at heart. And yes. then for kids, they need to realize that um, that's a rare thing to find somebody who, who cares about you that much. Very, very, very true. I, I got a letter from a former athlete once. I mean, you know, if you, if you get feedback in your life ever, it's icing on the cake, right? And one of them said that to me. She was probably an unlikely candidate for the team. And she said that I, I, I actually said to her exactly what my coach said to me. I said, you, did, you know, you did well. You did well today. It was her first day. And I said, um, how do you feel? And she said, I hurt in places, muscles I didn't know I had. And I, I've, never, I've never hurt so much because I called her at home after, after the workout. And, I, and that had never happened to her before. Right. And too. I said, so how do you feel? And she told me how, you know, how it was hard. And I said, good good, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. And she thought, well, I have to be show up tomorrow. And she thought, wow, the coach just called me and the coach expects to see me. Right. Right. And that means a lot to those kids. Oh, it means so much. It means the world. And I always laugh and talk to other coaches. And I always say the biggest honor I get is when I get invited to a wedding or I, yeah. I get, a, you know, I get a, a notice that they've had a baby or they yeah. come back and say, I know one young lady came back and she said, you know, all that goal setting stuff that you did, she said, boy, I'd had none of that in college and I really appreciated it. So you do, it's like you said, when you get feedback, it's, yeah. it's, oh, so it's, it's a gift. It's a gift. I, I don't know. I might never know about some athletes, but I do love the feedback I get later. I, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent. I could tell many stories too. Um, they, and oftentimes they get to college and then they realize how grateful they were for what they had before. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's so important. That caring part of it is so terribly important. So you said you were a child of the 60s. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a, a you too. <laughs> of the 70s and a soccer mom of, of the 80s. Right. Um, but let's time travel back a little bit and uh, with you and help. Could you help us understand how the 60s led into your activism of the 70s and 80s. Um, I know for me that, that the fight alone was probably the biggest thing that kept me running. Um, uh, I was a bit of a rebel and uh, the fact that I was doing something in a sense that uh, was breaking barriers or I wasn't supposed to do was a real motivation for me. Um, so my militancy led into kind of my running in the 70s. Um, what was it like for you? I, I, I believe it was very much the same. Running was not approved. Uh, it was not ladylike. And so, of course, I wanted to do that because I found that was what I found was fun. And so, of course, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, my, you know, at the time, my parents had the attitude that it was a big waste of time. Mm -hmm. And I do remember being told like, uh, sort of like, like, you need to either finish college and get a career or find a, find a young man who can keep you in the style to which you become accustomed <laughs> and get married. And what is running getting you? You know, so why do you bother with that? So going out for a run was never an excuse. Uh, they actually said things like that energy would be better spent uh, mowing the lawn or vacuuming the house or something, you know. Um, so not a lot of approval. And 
of course I wanted to do it more. And the fact that it was the first women's track team at my high school and I didn't have to, I got out of softball. <laughs> I got out of those sports I didn't like. Sure, I'm going to do that. I'd already been going with friends of mine to the boys track meets. And so it was something I, I'd like to be in the limelight instead of in the spectator stands. Yeah, I'd like to be doing that too. Right. So right. of course. Um, and then of course, as I said, once I started with Laszlo, it was like I was married to the track. You know, it was like, okay, my, my everyday fo now focuses around it. So by then I'm hooked. But as to the reason I got into it, it was a little bit rebellious. In part, it was also preparation. I, um, I used to go backpacking a lot and hiking. Right. And we would take uh, a, like a bunch of kids and go for like seven days out on the trails, uh, a camp, mountain camp. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I've got to be in shape to keep ahead of the kids. And mm -hmm. so in a way the running contributed to that. But um, mostly it was just in my heart. I just loved it. As to how I turned into an activist, well, I suppose looking back at my high school coach who said, why don't the girls have a track team? That instilled in me, whether I knew it at the time or not, it instilled in me to question authority. Ch children of the 60s questioned authority, definitely. And she taught me to question, why not? You know, which is more important than why. Why not? Right. And so I developed that attitude. So that by the time I did get to the point where I realized I'm missing out on the Olympics, right. I learned to question, why not? Right. Why can't I go to the Olympics? Why can't I? I'm a marathoner now. When I was a miler, I could go to the Olympic trials. Now I'm a marathoner and I, can't. And I have a dead end. Right, right. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me, too, that I don't know if you had this experience, but I ran a lot of road races, and part of it was because of the people I knew. They were all running road races. And I just remember going to the first couple of road races and them saying to me, sorry, there's no women's division. You can't run. If you want right. to run, go ahead, but we're not going to time you kind of a thing. Right. And I just remember I, I had not been in this world, and I, I, I kept thinking to myself, well, you know, we're fighting for a lot of freedoms nowadays as women, especially as women. Definitely. And, and definitely. And, you know, why? Why can't I do this? And I remember running in the men's New England, uh, I think it was a six-mile cross-country championships, and uh -huh. um, sort of the same experience that um, Catherine Switzer had with Jock Semple. And he saw me on the starting line, but all the guys surrounded me and we took off, but he wouldn't let me finish. He would not give me a time. And so... Anyways, that activism, you know, I think came from my idea as a feminist. That's exactly right. Um, something occurs to me, I don't have any artwork right next to me, but one of my favorite artists, of, she's like the Andy Warhol of female artists in the 60s, and she oh, was a nun. Uh, she taught at a school not far from me. I, I wish I'd known, I, I'd have met her, but I found a poster and in a window one day, and I, I, I'm being an English major and keeping my 40 years of journals, I also kept quotes in my wallet. So I had to jot, I had to jot this down, I, along with my uh, Thoreau quote about, beat, you know, to the beat of a different drummer, that was always my theme. 
um, March to the Beat of a Different Drummer. But I kept the Sister Corita quote, at least I thought it was her quote, it was her artwork. And it said, for once in your life, you can say you gave everything you had for justice. And I carry that quote around me forever, forever. I've never been able to find the poster. Even her foundation director can't find the poster. They suspect she was commissioned by an outside organization to do it. And it wasn't her quote, it was her artwork. Right. I now have the quote in the full context of the speech uh, given by Jill Ruckenhaus. Um, it's, it's in my book. I use it as one of my chapter. Every chapter has a quote. I'm big on quotes. And, and this one was the end of a, ca a caucus, a, the Women's Political Caucus, long speech about giving, giving your all to the cause for women's rights. And at the end of the day, you can say you gave everything you had for justice. And, and it's signed by, I've got it signed by Gloria Steinem too. So oh. um, I have it framed, I can see it from here. <laughs> but um, that quote resonated with me. And so justice was kind of like a theme with me. Yes. Uh, so besides being a rebel, I also was seeking justice. And, 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 and running, being a world record holder while an Olympics comes and goes. I was a record, world record holder from 74 to 77 while the 1976 marathon Olympic trial, excuse me, the 1976 Olympic games in Montreal went, came and went without me, yep. without my event. Yep, yep. And you know, it, the, the justice part of it, um, I think of so many women and that actually leads right into the next question. If you want to see more women coaching, running and track and field, please join us at the WRCC and support our mission. We exist to support, unite, inform, inspire, encourage, and empower women coaches at all levels of our sport. To sign up and become a member, go to our website, womensrunningcoaches.org. There are interviews with coaches, membership registration, merchandise, ask a coach, and so much more. Be a part of this collective. It's free. Or if you want, you can contribute to be a part of getting more women involved in coaching track and field and running. Let's change the world together. Become a member of the WRCC. So in the documentary, and I know you haven't seen it, but I would highly recommend it. It's called Not For Ourselves Alone, and it's by Ken Burns. And it's the story of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Sus Susan B. Anthony, um, both of which were born, you know, in the 1820s, 1815, 1820. And they um, both were fighting for the vote and neither one of them ever got a chance to vote themselves. I mean, Elizabeth Cady Stanton died like 1902, 16 years before we got the vote. And Susan B. Anthony died in 1906, 14 years before. Um, I believe, I truly believe this in, in my heart, that if you had been able to run in an Olympic marathon during your peak years, which I think were 74, 75, 76, Correct. somewhere around there, um, a medal would have been yours in the Olympics. I truly believe that. So what are your feelings about fighting for the inclusion of longer events uh, in the Olympics and then never being able to make an Olympic distance running team? Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate the compliment and um, I, I've often said during that time and during that era that there was no guarantee 
I would be the gold medalist or any, any color medal, but I deserved the right to try. And at the beginning of my activism, like in 74, I truly believed that I, we could make this change and I could go to Montreal. So kind of a selfish endeavor in a way, that's how it began. Like this should be simple to fix. Right. Uh, there's something very wrong here, but I think I know how to fix it. Right. And naive as I was. And yet not having that opportunity, and I had to move on. You know, I had to move on and do something better. But we had to form the International Runners Committee, which I think you said we would talk about at some yes. point, maybe not yet. Yes. But um, the, the fact that we the job wasn't going to get done for 10 years you know like from the time i began in 74 how did i know it would take 10 years for it to, happen. to get to the mar the marathon into the olympic games and i would be past my prime right. Right. so at, at some point during that whole ordeal which we'll detail later i became very disillusioned about the olympic committee yes. and the and our federation and realizing that it's not fair they're not fair and um yet the next generation deserves the chance to try. Yeah. So that kept me going. That thought kept me going. It may be too late for me. I maybe don't even want to go to their Olympics anymore. I'm so upset with them. Um, but the next generation deserves that chance. And I remembered being the younger woman, naive as I was, that going to the, what the Olympics meant. Right. And I, so I never lost sight of that. But I did, I did lose sight of it as my personal goal, but I didn't lose sight of the fact that um, the next generation needed that opportunity. And of course, Joni being with me during the Olympic, the fact that the Olympic Games came to my hometown and we had a marathon and I housed Joni um, for the duration. So she, cause who, nobody wanted to be housed in the village downtown. Uh, they wanted to be out running on the course. So I, I lived on the course. So anyway, uh, she said, thank you. Oh. She won that first gold medal. And if I didn't get to chase it, at least I got to hold it. And she said, thank you for the opportunity. And that's, that's all the reward I would ever need. It's so funny because I think at a very emotional level, um, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't exactly at the place you were at in terms of, you know, I couldn't run a marathon because I really wasn't a marathoner. But at that very emotional level, um, you know, things like being um, denied, uh, you know, a time at the finish or, you know, silly things like uh, running a race and the first man gets a beautiful chair and I got a little doll chair. I don't know if you oh. heard that story or, or being really harassed on the courses. I, you know, it wasn't other runners. It really wasn't other runners. It was bystanders, you know, laughing and pointing and sure. saying things that they shouldn't say, you know, um, sure. in, in long races, especially where I was, you know, trying very hard and running very well and all those things. So at a very emotional level, and I think, um, you know, as young as you were, in 74. Um, I, I can imagine it was almost crushing in a way to not have that opportunity. That opportunity, it's all about opportunities in every walk of life. That's what it's about. Um, but maturing 
into that person who cared enough about the sport and other women um, to finally 10 years later to get it for uh, a Joan Benoit Samuelson. And, you know, right. she's, she's an amazing person and has repeatedly thanked me, which is, I didn't do as much as you did, but she's very cognizant of the fact that we fought incredibly hard. She never stops saying thank you to us pioneers in general. And she never stops giving back to the sport every day of her life. And I'm jealous because she never stopped running. So she has better genes than I do. I'm limited to, I ride my stationary elliptigo, which is ironic. I got the elliptigo to get out of the gym and now I've got it on a stationary trainer. <laughs> oh, oh, that's hilarious. I know. Well, because it's easier to stay home during COVID than to, and I can't even find a gym anyway, but, um, and I can't find a pool. My other workout is running in the pool and my, my gym is closed. So whatever. So it's my, my stationary elliptigo or not. Well, I think Joni, uh, I ran a, a race in Portland, Maine uh, and her father's, uh, clothing store named Benoit's gave me a gift coupon and this was probably a couple of years she was probably in high school at the time it was a half marathon set the course record went out to uh, well probably I set the course record because I was the only woman that had ever run it before <laughs> and I went fault. to the store <laughs> talked to her father and um, I didn't know didn't know Joni at the time um, and he talked about his daughter being a runner and loving running and um, a couple of years later, she was darned and determined to break that course record of mine. I bet. You know, it just, uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful and it's hard at both, at both ways. Uh, right, right. You know, on an emotional level, it's like, why? Why didn't I get that chance? And at a, a very different level, it's, thank gosh, that we finally got it. Right. I wouldn't do anything differently. I wouldn't change it. You know, I mean, people, people always want to ask you, don't they? Like, don't yeah. you wish that you ran when there was prize money? Right. And, and I just answered like, I ran for fun. Right. And I was very goal oriented by the clock. Right. And I wanted to PR, you know, and if my PRs happened to be better than anybody else's PR, and I got to win, so be it. But it was I said, I wouldn't want my paycheck to depend on my performance. Doris, uh, Doris said a very similar thing and talked a little bit about, um, you know, she was one of those people that you couldn't keep down. She was going to run no matter what. And she said, I'm not sure if, um, you know, making money would have made any difference in my life, to be very honest yeah. with you. I right. mean, she said, I still would have done it. Uh, so yeah, there's something that gets in your blood, isn't it? About running. It, it's, it's true. My uh, Tom always, my husband, Tom always said there are runners and racers right. and he was a racer and I was a runner. Mm -hmm. If somebody said to a racer that you could never, for whatever reason, you'll never race again, would you keep running? And the answer would be no. And me, if you told me, it wouldn't make any difference. If I never raced again, I would run as long as I could. Which but I you did. know what? You also would have found a way to race again. Knowing I would have found a way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. I don't know. We played those games. And uh, even in my little high school team, it was like, would you rather have an Olympic medal or a world record? And I said, I'd rather break a world record in the Olympic Games winning the medal. Yes. <laughs> I want it all. I want it all. <laughs> you know, I do believe that that 
was the difference between women who ran in the 60s and before we who ran in the 70s and into the 80s i think the difference was we were tired of not having we were we were going to take what we wanted yeah and and you know that's it whereas i think doris said many times you know i was so grateful to get to go to this meet to get to try out for this team um you know but although what a competitive person you know she she for sure but it just ge different generations in the way that we approach things exactly um, so you were the first woman to break 245 in the marathon and then 240 in the marathon. Um, you started marathoning in uh, 1972. Mm -hmm. uh, I think your first race was 315, your first marathon. Right. Uh -huh. um, and then three years later, you ran a world record uh, of 238.19 at the OTC marathon in Eugene. Um, what was your training like over those years? And what do you feel made you so successful? Um, and the one question that really intrigues me, uh, kind of when all the men broke the four minute barrier in the mile, do you think that the fact that you saw women running these incredible times, um, did it in a sense lead you to realize that this was possible? Do you kind of know, I mean, it's a combination of training, but I also think there's something else that happens when you see other people doing something. Oh, it's true enough. In fact, now that you say that, um, that's why I ran my first marathon because the, the training was not there. Right. The goal was not there. I, I think I gave my coach two weeks notice. <laughs> I had seen, just to back up a little bit, I had seen in 1971, my own teammate who I ran the two mile with, the two mile relay, cross country, 800, 1500, 3000. And so I knew we were comparable. And yet one, one at the end of 1971, after cross country season, she was over, she said, well, I'll, I'll be back in LA uh, next, in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna run a marathon in Culver City. And I thought anybody crazy enough to do that deserved a cheerleader. So my teammate, Judy Graham and I, and Laszlo, uh, we showed up to cheer her on. Who was it, was it Cheryl? It was Cheryl Bridges. Yeah. Uh, she was running as Cheryl Bridges at the time. As you know, she's had multiple name changes. So she, her maiden name was Pedlo when she competed in college and she was Bridges. She was married to her coach at San, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And she came down and ran the marathon with the guys and was the first woman to break 250 world record wow. and won the race. Wow. First marathon I've ever witnessed. Right. And I thought right then and there, if she can do that, maybe I can do that. Right, right. And I vowed right then and there, I'd like to try that next year. <laughs> Meanwhile, go back to indoor track, outdoor track, right. summer training for cross country, do the, you know, go through the routine. At the end of the next cross country season, I remembered that marathon. And, <laughs> and on two weeks notice, I went to ask Lazo if I could run it. Remember I said, you had to ask permission to do anything. And I figured his attitude was, um, you don't run a marathon until you're too slow to do anything shorter. That was the attitude of a lot of people. That oh, yeah. yeah. You don't, don't move up in distance until you're not successful at the shorter distances. So I didn't think he would say yes. Mm -hmm. But the soft philosophical side of him came out and said, some things you have to find out for yourself. And I think, I think you could try that. And I think you'll go far. 
and I never got a straight answer about what he meant about far. Like he mm -hmm. could have meant realistically, you'll probably last about 18 miles and quit. Mm -hmm. Or maybe he saw something, you know, oh, you have a future in distance running. I don't know what he saw, but he let me do it. I think he wanted it to, wanted me to get it out of my system. But he let me try and be, I, I, of course I hit that wall at mile 18. But the other thing he was very firm about was you never dropped out of a race. Right? So, because uh, it made it too easy to drop out the next time. So I finished somehow, uh, I, I finished so slowly that uh, my friends on their bicycles had to get off and walk their bicycles because I was moving so slow at the end. But I ran 315 and I won because Cheryl wasn't there that day. And I, my first words were, never again that was never the hardest did. thing i ever did in my life i'll never do that again until i started to think about it i get an award i get a medal over my neck and and i get celebrated and oh by the way i had not told my parents oh because yeah they weren't into the running thing so i told a white lie and i made up something and wrote a note and left it on the kitchen table because i left so early in the morning you know they <laughs> marathons start very early so I left really super early and I was supposed to be home for a family dinner that afternoon. So I had to have an excuse and I wrote out a note, Judy and I are going for our run. And I thought I need a little more time than that. So I added shopping and I <laughs> added a movie, maybe a movie. I don't know. We're, 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 I'll be back by dinner. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a grown woman, you know, I'm out of high school, right? But I still had to leave excuses because yeah, the running part wasn't, that approved of. Anyway, so I go off, but of course now I've won the race and I have to stay for the awards ceremony. So now I'm really late because uh, for the afternoon a meal and I get home and I'm trying to slip in the back door quietly. Everybody's already seated at the table and dinners, you know, things are served and they all stood up and applauded. Oh, how wonderful. They'd seen it on television. Of course they did. <laughs> And my aunt lived on the course and saw the whole thing and told them <laughs> that's why they turned on the television. And then they were my biggest fans forevermore. Right, right. Like, oh, she's really serious about this stuff. Yes. But yeah. that, that also paints the picture of what it was like to grow up in the 60s, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, so. Well, um, my father never watched me run. He had two races that he watched me, of which I ran. And when I finished the second one, he said, huh, you know, just kind of, hmm, yeah, you're pretty good. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Joan, remember Joni's story about her dad? Why are you getting on a plane to go all the way across the country to run a one-mile race that takes five minutes? Right, right. And she said, Dad, you'll never understand until you start running. Yes. And he did, didn't he? And he, he? did. <laughs> and he My did. father so, did, too. My father we, started running also. And, you know, it just... Yeah, we've all had those moments. And it, and, and, it, and it had to do a lot with the fact that we were females, even though I, I consider my parents fairly liberal and all that. But what had been was changing so rapidly. Right. And what right. we were becoming, you know, was very different than the worldview that they held, for sure. Exactly. You're so right. And so my second marathon was Boston. So, okay, Culver City was in December. 
Boston was in April, but now I have my family raising money for my fare to send me to Boston. Right. And, and I live next door to an actress named Leanne Merriweather and her going away gift was a sweatsuit um, nice. with a condition that we would share it. We both loved it. And she goes, I oh. love it as much as you love it. it but if, if you win the race, you get to keep it. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was, that was kind of a cute side story. So I, anyway, I went, went off to Boston with all their good wishes, but also I now had Laszlo upping the workouts, upping the mileage, the best we knew how. Right. The best we knew how was to, his idea was to triple my intervals, like whatever everybody else got, I got oh. two or three times. Oh my God. So I, I'd be the last one on the track. <laughs> It was dark. It was well, dark. Yeah. Oh, and dark. I'm glad you said dark because I was going to school. I was working to pay my own way through school and supporting myself in my own apartment and training. So this is the era in which I gave up television. This was the era where I learned that discipline right. and that determination and commitment and responsibility, all, all those life lessons Lazo taught me. I learned them in a practical way. I had to keep my grades up to stay up, you know, to keep running, keep the job, to keep everything else going. And my everyday revolved around morning workout and evening workout. And it was dark. Boston being in April meant, I know, I don't have a rough winter in California, but I ha don't, didn't have any sunshine either. I was going to say, it gets dark. So I'm working out before <clears throat> dawn or after sundown. Right. 11, not that I was counting, but 11 out of 13 workouts a week were in the dark. Wow. And maybe Saturday and Sunday I could run in the sun. Right, right. right. To me, that was the hardest part. Right. That finding that kind of discipline, you know, and you just, you get home, you eat some dinner, you fall asleep, you wake up and start all over again. Right, right. That was hard. That was really hard. Most of my marathons after that were in the fall. So right. I had those long summer days to train by. So, so how, did, how did running 315 um, and then, you know, slowly work, not slowly, quickly working your way down, Yeah, running 238. I mean, what did, did I know you tripled your, your interval workouts. How about your mileage? Did you? Well, yes, I did. I, I, we were in the high mileage era. So I did what the boys yeah. did. And, you know, we, I did get to add, running on the asphalt, running on the roads, you know, which brought about injuries. I mean, Lasa was right. As long as we were on grass and dirt, I never had injuries. But when the high mileage and asphalt were involved, I had right. my first injuries. But my mileage, um, so my mileage was pretty good going into Boston, but we still did a lot of tactical things wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but I won. So I realized I'm really not a miler anymore. I'm a, I really am a marathoner. I've really found my event. And I went, I guess my next marathon was the game changer. Well, Boston launched my career. Absolutely. But going to the first women's international marathon in Vaudneil, Germany, West Germany at the time, and running against other women, the best in the world, right. I stepped up the pace. I did not win, but I was first American. And I broke three hours for the first time. Right. And so I went from a 315 to a 305 to a 256 wow. and came home with so much confidence. Right. 
having run with other women who from other countries. But like Lasso said, remember, they just pull their shorts on over their feet like you do. Thank you. <laughs> so I, but that was the confidence builder. I came home and in December, 243. Yep. So I went from 315 to 305 to 256 to 243 to a year, the next year, 238. Because by then we've refined my training a lot. I learned that um, I didn't need the 100. I went up to 120 miles a week. Yeah. And I didn't need that. I got that 238 on nothing higher than 85 mile week. Yeah. Yeah. And I found the... I. That marathon, according to my journals, I all the stepping stones were in place. My 10K time, my yes. half marathon time, my 15K time, my 30K time were all coming down. And I was I didn't I skipped the national championships because I didn't have those hundred mile weeks, didn't think I was ready. I went off to Eugene, Oregon to try out six minute pace as a test. And, you, <laughs> and I, I nailed it. Nailed and it. I, re, I never went over 85 miles for a marathon training. And again, I found, I found my Optima. Perfect, perfect place. Yeah. I tried very hard to get up to, I was more of a 40, 50 mile per week person, mainly because my body just did not hold up. I tried an 80, 82 mile week and didn't run for six months after that with an yeah. issue on my uh, IT band. But you know, it's, it's, I, I remember Joni um, kind of graduated from college, uh, going back up to Maine. I think she was living in Boston um, and going and all of a sudden coming back and running. She was over 100 miles, you know, with her maniac, the guys that she trained with up there. And I kept thinking to myself, gosh, if I could only do that. Yeah. But it just wasn't in the stars for me. And it sounds like you found that perfect place for you. I did. I did. Yeah, didn't need the high mileage. No. Um, really, it was more about quality than quantity. Exactly. And Laszlo was the perfect person for the quality part of it. Exactly right. I mean, he got me where I was. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't need, I, I didn't need the high mileage. I did not. Were your long runs quick or were they pretty moderate pace? Pretty moderate pace. My long runs were pretty moderate pace. Um, and I, I spent seven years coaching marathoners for charity. Uh, so the beginners, novice, you got six months to their target and you've got to get them from zero to 26 and six months. And I told them, I said, trust the long runs are slow. It's about the time you're putting in the time you're putting in, you're training your body to be on your feet for more than three hours, which that marathon is going to take you more than three hours. And in that group, it's more four or five hours. Yeah, it's remarkable. I always think they're my heroes. <laughs> they are. They're out there longer. They're out there way longer. But they're also a uh, double goal. Uh, they, they're raising money for a loved one, for a charity, and they're putting in the mileage. It's not all about, just about them. But I said, trust that when we have our interval days and you have your speed work here, and then you have your long days and there's moderate pace there, it's all going to come together on race day. You'll have the endurance, you're going to, your race pace will be somewhere in between. Right, right. And you'll be stronger and be able to hold that longer. Right. So that I helped a lot of uh, charity marathoners over the years with that attitude. Um, and I didn't coach the way I was coached. 
No, I, I coach high school kids. I coach novice marathoners and um, I don't give them boatloads of intervals. I don't want to break them down. Um, their speed work is determined on their 5K time or their 10K time because I'm not training them to be milers. Um, so. Well, and Jacqueline, I think, you know, you, you talk about Laszlo and, and your naivety and, and then the fact that he had maybe never worked with longer distance, but the fact was um, he was the perfect coach for you, you know, and, and, but, but there are many people who could not have held up under that kind of training. Exactly. Uh, Survival of the fittest. Yeah. Uh, and, and, Although I believe just by the way you have, you know, you've got this soft side of him, which I had never heard of before. Not many have. <laughs> no, and I love it. And the fact is he was watching you carefully. I have a, a coach that I worked with very short period of time, Bob Williams. I don't know if you know Bob from Portland. Mm -hmm. Right. He was that similar kind of coach. He would give us a workout, but then, you know, on that day, he made some, you know, game day decisions about what we were going to be doing right. in a workout. And, and right. that's, that's a great coach for sure. So every runner I know has a story of a turning point in their lives. And you've, you've touched on this, but can you remember sort of that moment in that kind of revealed to you that you were a runner? And uh, I know you talked slightly about uh, Dixie Griffin. Uh -huh. um, and you know, why was she important in your life? And, and was that revolution, revelation of being a runner, did that happen around that period of time or was it a little later? Um, I'm thinking it, it, it was a combination of Dixie, at the time I didn't know it, but Dixie Griffin instilled in me to question, you know, why not? Why, to question, why can't I run farther? Why can't I run in the Olympics? Why can't I race? on the roads with the men, that kind of thing. I did not realize until I was writing my book and now that we have the internet and Google, I could research her a little more and realize that she wasn't just another track runner. Uh, well, she never was a track runner. She wasn't just a thrower. She wasn't just a track and field person for herself. She, prob she wrote a paper, it was either her thesis or her dissertation at her college and she was in the newspaper quoting, quoted as saying, you know, if the world expects us to go to the Olympics every four years and win medals, we need to teach our girls how to run. We need to teach them in elementary school and middle school and high school. We need to encourage them in college. We need to support them. We need to teach them. And I know having, you know, graduated, uh, with doing my own papers that I, I did research about, you know, the difference between men and boys and girls, men and women in PE. And sure, boys are more inclined to try a new sport or try an event, try any sport right. without specific coaching in, in PE classes, but girls are not. Right. So girls needed the introduction. They need the introduction to be, they need the opportunity. They need to be brought along. So if we expected them to do extracurricular activities or join a club or make a team or go on, they need to be taught. So she was on a mission. And so when starting that first class in my high school, I learned uh, years later that she, there were other women like her in my area. So that's why we had other schools to compete with. That's why we had a city meet because it was a collective organized push, which I was not aware of in 1966. Right. I was just the 
beneficiary of it. And um, I think I think that that was what she instilled in me. But and I want to back up a little bit to say that as far as running with the other women in the world, I had one contemporary that I would say we were um, we were cross town rivals, and yet we were good friends. And that would be Krista Volensik of West Germany. Oh, right. So Cheryl taught me that Cheryl introduced and inspired me to run that first marathon. If she can do it, I can do it. Krista and I had a competition going my entire career, maybe a little bit with Chantel Longlaw, say, and if you look in Wikipedia, we broke each other's records back and forth, you know, during those, those years. But Krista was the, the one, the key one. It was like, okay, I want to be the first woman to break 10 miles in the hour run. Right. Except Krista did it first. Well, I want to run. I've got to, I did it. So I did it twice. <laughs> I did them back to back weeks because I was trying to beat, break her record. Did you? I, I didn't know. She, she still had, she still prevailed. I got over 10 miles twice, but she still prevailed by a few yards. That's okay. I got to be the American record holder in the one hour run and I was still the national champion, but there was always this little competition, even if it wasn't head to head. And honestly, I don't think I ever beat her in a head to head competition. In fact, to tell you the truth, I know I can say that for a fact. I never beat her head to head, but um, I did beat her to the sub 241st. I got that one. And then uh, there was another opportunity where, um, like you said, you, you, what you think you should be able to run road races with men. I was put on a team to go to Puerto Rico. I was put on a USA team to go to Puerto Rico to run a 30 kilometer race. And they had a women's division. And during the race, a man from Brazil uh, was there when we were all gathered men and women together and said, hey, I'm a race director in Brazil. Would anybody be interested? in running the Sal Silvestre midnight run uh, on New Year's Eve. And I raised my hand. Of course. <laughs> and so the guys, you know, the, guy, the US guys I got to go were picked right on the spot. But he said to me, I'm so sorry, we don't have a women's division. Mm. And I said, why not? <laughs> Let me help you. Let me help you build one. And we stayed in contact, we kept it, we corresponded, we stayed in touch. Um, and I helped him, he got it approved by the race committee. And I suggested, I said, I can build the field for you. I suggested Krista, I outdid myself, she even beat me there. I was second. <laughs> but we, you know, Eleonora Mendoza said the other night, she was very grateful that uh, being from Brazil, that now the Sal Silvestre was open to women. She didn't know it was thanks to me, but uh, she was like really excited about that. So yeah, you know, um, I was spurred on by other women. And I, and I think sometimes I, I'm not the, I'm a goal-oriented person. I'll run for time before place. But sometimes I'm sure we ran as far as it took to win, as fast as it took to win. Right. Yeah. And so that's probably why I didn't know my limits right. until later, you know, I just kept running. I thought, I thought I would improve five minutes every time I ran, five or 10 minutes. I thought that would go on forever, but of course it didn't. You know, I plateaued at 2.38. Oh, well, that's a pretty great plateau for sure. No, I agree. And I, and I, I think when you know something is possible, um, I just kept remembering the only way, and I think you guys talked about this the other night on the Boston Marathon, 
um, uh, Zoom call was that you heard very slowly what was happening on the West Coast yeah. and the East Coast. And I remember somebody from the West Coast saying, <clears throat> Charlotte, I heard you ran, I don't know, 57 minutes for 10 miles or something. And yeah. that had gotten across like fairly quickly. And yeah. I had to say, well, the course was all downhill and I'm sure it was like, <laughs> only nine okay. or something like that. It was like we already, we were already psyched. <laughs> right. But people were like, oh, you know, I can do that. And I, and I do think there's a lot of that that happens. And, um, you know, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. That's what it's all about, really, truly. So. For part two of this interview, go to womensrunningcoaches.org or at our Women's Running Coaches Collective podcasts on Spotify and Apple. Thank you so much for joining us for this very special interview. We always love your feedback or your likes. For more conversations on coaching, go to our website and join us again to listen and learn about coaching from the Women's Running Coaches Collective. So much more to come. Become a member of the Women's Running Coaches Collective. Join us today and be a part of changing the landscape of women coaches in running and track and field.